therefore be self-controlled and sober-minded for your future service. Christians, those who desire to live out their days as a faithful pilgrim and making good and uh, strong choices for their life of perseverance, there is a need to rightly understand what Peter means when he says, the end of all things is at hand. You can kind of think of the, the um, themes there and some of the photographs perhaps captured uh, by history where an individual is standing, or maybe you'll see him outside of a football stadium holding up the sign, the end is near. And you're thinking to yourself, what does that mean? Well, it's similar somewhat, but not exactly. When Peter says in Scripture so that you as a Christian can take it seriously, that the end of all things is at hand. Again, the sense that the end is at hand, or the end is not, is the position of the New Testament writers. So, it is, again, upon us to be able to understand this so that we can take it with the full integrity to which it is meant to impact our lives today. We think of 2,000 years of church history, and then we read a statement by Peter, meaningfully, and he says, the end is at hand. The first century audience. And we need to really think hard. How can we say that with a measure of integrity? And how can I repeat it like that 2,000 years ago? I mentioned there are four key elements. Um, the statement itself is it's my labor before you to help, I hope, you and myself as well to be able to take that singular statement with sobriety and have it impact our lives in our ethics, which is Peter's intent, is to help you understand that that statement or the sense of the New Testament when it's summarized, that the end is near, is to understand that statement belongs to a web of ideas. And then my labor is to help you understand to what web of ideas does that statement belong? So that I can understand the broad picture of what that means, and then by understanding the broad picture of what that means, it immediately begins to impact my ethics going forward. In other words, I live now in a manner that is impacted by that statement at the end of the I mentioned last week there are four key elements which make this statement of Peter's, the end of all things is at hand. There are four key elements which make this evident to us in Scripture. 
the first two, which we covered last week, first two of the four elements of the web of ideas to which this one statement falls within is the birth of Christ, our King. The first, the four elements which make this evident that indeed, yes, the Christian in the 21st century, I, Adam Thomas, can embrace and be shaped by the thought that the end of all things is at hand. It's because I know that Christ, the King, was born. We considered that last week. Um, when you look at Matthew 1, and you see the statement that Christ is born, why? What will he do? Chapter 1, he will save his people from their sins. It's significant for us as we consider the work of Christ. Both as a believer, we meditate upon the power of that death in your life. Again, he didn't die to make salvation possible. He died to effectually save his people from their sins. As one of his own, through the empty vessel of faith, one who claims indeed to belong to Christ, I hope the effectual nature of the atonement impacts you deeply. It wasn't something out there that he did over there, and I went over to it. He came and he died to bring it nigh to me. Not simply enabling it in the realm of possibility, but effectually saving you from that. Notice that, again, his birth is housed or, or framed in the connection to his authority as king. The Magi play that part in Matthew 1. Uh, you, you see the discussion between them and Herod. Tell, us where, tell me where the king of the Jews, right? So Matthew's framing the birth of Christ in light of his kingship, the king is born. We celebrate that um, at, at every Christmas season. As you work your way through Matthew 1, then you see the Magi, who then arrive at the scene, and they present to him his kingly gift. And you remember the gold, frankincense, and myrrh. This is the picture of those who bring their offerings to a conquered king. They acknowledge him as such, bring offerings come to him as such, and then you remember their response when they go to conquer. Second of four elements, and I'm going to cover the last two this morning, but the second of the four elements I gave to you last week was the manifestation then, the manifest power of his kingdom in his life. You watch him grow through ministry, everything from where we see him again at 12 years old, and he's reading the scrolls in the place of the temple, um, and his parents have lost him or missed 
king returned to find him leading the soul and the audience amazed at his ability to make it. Then you watch him develop and grow through the course of his ministry where we join him yet again in his early 30s beginning his ministry and you see the manifestation of divine power at work in his life, the spirit working his life, manifesting and healing people by his own only includes the spiritual healing through the forgiveness of our sins, but also the accompanying physical healing. As disordered nature itself acknowledges You see, when we watch his ministry unfold, as I mentioned to you last week, we watch the healing of those who are sick and lame, those who are possessed by demonic entities and demonic spirits.
took you to Matthew 12, and I just know that for you is a place to go back and read. I think if you, if you jump into Matthew 12, which we don't have time to reverse, but by way of another way, you can go back from Matthew 12 to go back and you will call the Jesus. It goes all the way back to the And the crowds begin to wonder and question the source of this healing power. Now, now I'm saying to you, as a good reader, you know the source of it. Indeed, it's scripture. It's in this room. That's what we're going to do. And we're going to call it the source of healing power. Amen. And then there's this, this physical, in the first century, manifestation of healing power in the crowd. You're like, uh-oh, uh-oh. What, what is the source of this power? What is the source of this? It must be divine. I'm sure it's a natural floating what would the response of our Lord be to those people he is demon possessed as he begins to bring nourishment in salvation for them? What would the response be? His accusation of demonic possession. It might surprise you. So in chapter 12, we find out his response is So if I was 
someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods, unless he first binds the strong man. A tremendous picture in apocalyptic form for you to meditate upon about this exact kingdom of binding strong men, plundering goods, Absolute binding of Satan that leads to the plundering of his house, which began in the ministry of Christ, and a continuous tradition throughout this age with the proclamation of Jesus Christ as the Lord of Acts 26 18. Once again, I draw your attention as we move from the Gospels and the presence and power of the kingdom. you may proclaim the excellencies of him. What did he do? Called you 
into His marvelous light. I am sending you to open their eyes so they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan unto God. They may receive forgiveness. You see, the presence of Christ and His kingdom devastating effect upon sin and satanic influence is marked as the beginning of the end of the world. Perhaps, and I hope to convince you in the next few moments, this is what God is doing. But you think, as I mentioned to you, the sign of an individual standing and holding in a pocket doomsday sign says the end of the world. Jump with me then to John 12. Uh, go to the Gospels. If you have a copy of Scripture with you, I do want you to see this passage as it is read so you also can see that this needs to be moving part of the image of God. The presence of the kingdom through the death of Christ on the cross. If you're in John chapter 12, I want to read verses 12 through 33 and, and, and then come back and make brief comments as we recognize the end of all things. How so, verse 23? Verse 27. John chapter 12, Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? But for this purpose, I have come to this world. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, no, an angel had spoken to him. Jesus answered them, this voice has come for your sake, not for mine. Notice very carefully verse 26. He explains what is going on in the Bible. Going up, and then he goes and he's drawing a 
is speaking of His power in the imminency of His return. And He will be returned as the second Notice that very carefully, verse 31 is explicit. Now, what is he talking about? Clearly, verse 33, he's, he's talking about the kind of death that he's going to die. And, and by that, that's verse 31. Now, in this hour, is the judgment of this world. Now, by this death, will the rulers of this world be cast out. In the hour of the cross, judgment is being inflicted upon the ruler of this world.
simply begin at verse 13 and read 6, 16, 14, and 15. No response. Not one tweet. 13 through 16. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, And here is the picture of just precisely how and, and when this engagement took place. How so? How did he take me who is dead and make me alive? How did he move me from darkness unto his marvelous light? Paul tells us. Having forgiven us all our transgressions by canceling the record of death stood up against us with its legal demand. This was set aside. You know, it, it, how? Uh, again, I, I'm lawless. I have a record of death. I mean, you just, you know, set it aside. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. Yes, indeed. He set this aside by nailing the cross. He also disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame. How? By triumphing over them. writer of Hebrews in chapter 2, verse 14 and 15 says this to you, by his death, again, Christ speaking, now is when this is true. By his name, judgment and deliverance. Writer of Hebrews saying, indeed, by his death, he destroyed him who holds the power of death, that is, the devil. Magnificent triumph of Christ on the cross that unmistakably, as you read your New Testament and you read it carefully, and Peter says to you, Hey, you know, believer, the end of all things is at hand. You know it is here. You say, How can I know it's here? It's the magnificent 
triumph of Christ on the cross that unmistakably displays to his friends and to his foes at the beginning of the end of the Or as the apostles continually say to the New Testament, Finally, then, number four. The fourth aspect, or the four elements that belong to such a phrase where we have a web of ideas, of understanding about the past, about the present, about the future, a web of understanding, and we read a text that says, the end of all things is near. And you don't feel like, oh, that's weird. Four elements of understanding the phrase that the end of all things is near is by understanding that it's the resurrection together with the ascension which ratifies the beginning of the end to God's redeeming program. It is the resurrection and the ascension of the beginning of the end of God's redemptive program. We finally go back for a moment to Christmas. If you'll go with me back there, this is the point of our inquiry. This is the point of our time together. This is the way to understand the text as we move forward. It is the resurrection together with the ascension which ratifies the beginning of the end of God's redemptive program. You see, as a believer, the thought that the end of all things is either is not a doomsday proclamation, but it's a statement of faith. A statement of faith. A statement of glory. If you're there in First Peter, I'll show you how we get there to verse 7 of chapter 4. It's driven on by chapter 3, beginning of verse 21. Again, chapter 3, verse 21, as he covers it, as we're, as we're motivated, as we're growing, as we're identifying with the church through the resurrection of Christ. That reality, that tectonic shift in redemptive history, the resurrection is an event that must not be unnoticed. who has gone. He, he, he was raised. Now he has gone to where? To heaven. Marking the ascension. And he ascended to heaven. And when he got there, 
the right hand of God. But how do we know this is a statement on his kingship? Well, angels' authority and power having been brought into suggestion. Describes Peter to them and says in verse 7, we just read chapter 3, verse 21 and 22. question then for our consideration of this single phrase and in light of the truth that we have. What is the practical application of the Or how do we know that this 